Welcome to Loving the Christ Life. I'm Brad Wilson. This program is produced weekly by the Christ Life Fellowship. Check us out, christ-life.org. Well, welcome to podcast number 178. So much goes on in the world every day, more so than I think ever before. And it's not just one thing. It's a number of things each and every day. And we've got to remain strong. And Warren Litzman has left so much behind for us. He knew. He knew we had need it one day. And that day is here more than ever. So thanks to Warren Litzman and his wonderful insight to the Bible and the In Christ message. Today is part number seven of his message, It's Jesus, Just Jesus. Oh, what a great, great study this has been. Let's get right into it. Here's Warren. All right, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. I'm continuing to get you centered and an understanding about who you are and how you became that way. Just as in the natural, you are who you are by natural birthing, so now to God you are who you are by a spiritual birthing. There are many descriptions of that in the Scripture, in Paul's epistles. By the way, I don't think I've said it this week, but if you're going to read the Scriptures that have to do with you, you're going to have to go to Paul's epistles and nowhere else. Because those are the only Scriptures that deal with you as a born-again, as one in whom Christ lives, as one who is following Paul. You must always remember that in this new life we follow Paul. That doesn't mean that Paul is the one that saved us or Paul is greater than Jesus, but eight times... Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, or do things like I do them. Now, what would make Paul make such an outlandish statement as that? Because you never hear this mentioned in Christianity. In all my years of Christianity, I never heard anybody preach as as a theme for life and doctrine that we are to follow Paul. That was because everybody gets their gospel from the whole Bible, and they didn't want anybody to think they didn't know the whole Bible. But what good is it to know the whole Bible? It's kind of like uh, in this day that we live, uh, driving a ox cart in comparison with a new Volvo. You see, things have moved on. God's plan has opened up to us in a newer way than we ever dreamt possible. And so we listen to Paul because Paul is the only one that God gave this information to. He talked to Jesus. Jesus gave him the revelations that are written in the epistles. He is the only one that received that. Dear Peter didn't get it. James didn't get it. John got some of it, and we're going to talk about John a little later. But we have to go to the man to whom this revelation was given. He doesn't take the place of Christ. He doesn't take the place of the rest of the Scriptures. He fits the place that belongs to those that have been saved since the cross. Those that are born again, washed in the blood. So we have to listen to Paul. We have to get our minds on what Paul has to say. Uh, It is astounding to me that I preach the gospel. I've been preaching it 55 years at least. It is astounding to me that I never got those things from Paul. I must have read them. I've taught the epistles on a college level. I've been in the book a long time. And to think that Paul would say like in, uh, what is it, 1 Corinthians 11 or 1, follow me as I follow Christ, I probably turned my nose up and said, well, we don't really believe that. We don't follow any man. We're not going to go that route. That's what people say to me often. They say, well, we don't follow man. We follow Christ. That means they follow the historical Christ. That means they follow a Christ that has nothing to do with them today. That Christ only has to do with us in the in Christ message, which only starts at Gethsemane. So you see, it's important to follow Paul. Get it in your mind. It doesn't matter what people say. 
You can sit in a church 50 years and a preacher can mislead you every time he preaches because he doesn't talk anything about the Christ that lives in you. Well, you put up with that, you tolerate that, you go through with that. Well, let's get it fixed that when Jesus talked to Paul, he said, Paul, you're the only one I'm giving this to. You're responsible. So is it a bad thing that Paul would say, hey, if you're going to follow this Jesus, you better listen to me. I'm responsible. Message was given to me. I'm the one that has it. I'm the one that he first revealed himself to me as being in me. So it's important to get that in your mind. I say this because two or three have asked me during this conference, uh, where do I go in the Bible to read? I can't make it any plainer. Get in Paul's epistles. Now there is a theology to that. Paul's epistles are the only things that can explain the four Gospels. And the four Gospels are what explains the Old Testament. And as I've said rather spurishly at times, if I was ever putting a Bible together, and God forbid that I ever tried, I have no interest in doing that. I'd like to paraphrase our message, though, in Paul's epistles, but I have no interest in putting the Bible together. But if I did put a Bible together, the first book I'd put in it would be First Thessalonians instead of Genesis. So that shows you how far off I am. It should be First Thessalonians, then Second Thessalonians, and then Romans, and then Galatians. It should be the Acts epistles first. That's the first thing you need to know are the epistles that are written during the Acts period. So we look to Paul to find out what it is we need to see and know about the Scriptures. Don't feel bad about it. Paul will tell you as you read along in his Scriptures that Jesus gave me these things to give to you. In fact, three times he says that this was given to me to give to you. So that settles it. It's not just something Paul came up with. He never claims anything of his own. He doesn't claim any great uh, visions or, or meetings, uh, special meetings with the Lord or the Holy Spirit, though he did have visions. But he never bases his message on that. He doesn't base his message on Paul at all. His message is based on Jesus. Just Jesus. I'm determined to know nothing save Jesus and Him crucified. So I have two or three more scriptures to give you here before we get into the theme for this this uh, session, the last of this day. In Galatians, did you turn to Galatians chapter 4? That's good. That's what I said, I think. Verse 19. Galatians 4:19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. This doesn't mean that he's uh, born again every time he talks to somebody. What this means is that even as a woman has deep pains, hard pains, when she's about to deliver a child, Paul says, I have that kind of pain until Christ is formed in you. I hurt. Why would he hurt so bad? Why couldn't he be like an average preacher, just be reading along in the Old Testament and just throw anything out to the people? Because he knew when he had a revelation from Christ that this was radically different than anything God had ever done and anything Jesus had ever said and he had the weight of it on him, and he said, I'm like a woman bearing a child at the last moment. I have the pain. I travail because I have but one mission in life, and that is that Christ be formed in you. Don't read this verse as if he is praying that they'll get more of Christ. That would be contrary to everything else he wrote. What this verse says is, 
Christ is in you, but He hasn't taken you over. He's in you, but He's not in parts of you. You understand how human is compartmentalized? That's a word. I got that word from our former president, Clinton. They asked him when he was in a court over one of his problems. They asked him, how can you do good things over here and bad things over here and still keep on going? He said, it's easy. I'm compartmentalized. I think the problem was he was messing around with this young girl and he still had a wife. And they wanted to know how you work those two things together. I'm compartmentalized. So what he explained was, I put certain things in, a part, in compartments of my life and I don't worry about them. They, they fit that compartment and I deal with them and nothing else is affected by it. Isn't that strange? I was just talking to my doctor back here, and, and he said, your blood has to do with all parts of your body. I can't compartmentalize it. But Christians do that. Christians compartmentalize things. They say, yes, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, and I'm a Christian. But where are they a Christian? Oh, I've compartmentalized that. I'm not a Christian on the golf course. I'm not a Christian at the bank. I'm not a Christian at the grocery store. I'm not a Christian where I work. But I am a Christian on Sunday. That's what we mean by compartmentalization. New word for a new world. I got it fixed so I can just set things in an area and they don't bother me. I run around with my wife one day, I can run around with another woman another day, and I don't get my days mixed up. <laughs> you keep it all in the compartment. All right. What about you? How many things have you put into a compartment where Jesus is not invited? He's your life. But you still got a mind that keeps things separated. You put things off to the side that Jesus ought to be a part of. My thought is, how can we do anything in life that doesn't have to do with Jesus? My point in this whole conference is that it's Jesus, just Jesus. So you don't really have an area of your life where Jesus is not. You don't have an area like that. I deal with people's severe problems in this generation and uh, uh, double dating, a man having two or three women, uh, uh, people being dishonest in their money matters, uh, kids at school. We've just had a real uh, ruckus in America over uh, kids not passing their main tests. In fact, teachers passing them when they failed and uh, all sorts of Things like that. What is that? That's compartmentalization. Because when they said to the teachers, why did you pass them when you knew they failed? Well, we, we thought it was best for them. Well, do you attach that to being uh, honest? No, no, we got the two separated. You see, we thought that was best for them, even if it appears to be dishonest. That's life. That's the world we live in. I was talking to somebody the other day uh, in Mexico. When you go into Mexico, you're liable to have to bribe a guard somewhere to get in and out without a lot of ruckus. And I said to the person, does that bother you? He said, no, that's a way of life. That's the way it is. So the world has turned to a place that we've got certain areas of our life that Jesus isn't invited in. He doesn't fit. He's not a part of it. Is that strange for our day? I make it sound like it is, but it wasn't. It was the same in Paul's day. So what he says in this verse, very simply is, 
that I hurt. I'm in travail until Christ is formed in every part of your life. I have feeling for that. I'm no Paul and don't have his commission, but I have his message. And the place I hurt most is to deliver the message again and again, and people don't get it. Oh, they'll sit in a meeting like this and say, boy, that's good, that's great. But they walk out, and Christ is not about to get in certain areas of their life. He's not going to get in it. So that means that if I was really going to help those people, I need to get down to the nitty-gritty and pick out all their problems, and every time they come to a meeting, hit them over the head. You're not letting Jesus do this. You're not doing that. That's what ministries do today. They see that, that people are not living, right? That They're pretty good when we're all singing and shouting. They're pretty good when uh, uh, they're serving the Lord by some kind of labor they do. But Christ is not formed in every part of their life. What about it? You see, you probably never have really thought that He is your life. You thought, well, i got my own life. I can do my own thing. I could be religious over here and irreligious over here. Governments are going to get into trouble with that kind of thing. America is going to get in serious trouble because they're trying to cut... God out of every place in government they can. And I think that's what Christians do. We're just not going to let Jesus be in in this business deal. God will have to know that I've got to get to it and I've got to make the deal. But I'm not going to let Christ be formed in this part of my life. I lay it out to you. We know how we live. We know what we're doing. And the Holy Spirit's great mission is to get Jesus into every area of our living. The world has always had the excuse that I'm just as good as a Christian. I live just like they do. I watch them. They do the things I do. They go to the places I go. And I'm not trying to put a hole in this code on you, but I'm trying to tell you until Christ gets formed in every part of your life, some of us are going to travail. And I travail that this message, God's message, doesn't get across to people enough for them to make it real to the world. There is somebody who knows Christ is not conformed by you in parts of your life. They see you carrying a Bible. They may see you praying. They may see you singing. But the world knows when Christ is not formed in every part of our life. Lord deals with that. But that's what this verse is talking about here. My little children, I travail like I was in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He's in you. He's not coming and going. He's not the one to be formed. He's God's gift. Christ is God's gift to you. He so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son. He's formed already in you. Let's go to another verse, if we could. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Oh, I've got to read verse 14, because some of you may have never heard me talk about that. Ephesians 2 and 14, for He is our peace. Just, just that one line. That's the language of the rebirth. That's the language of the birthing. 
He is our peace. What does it mean? Because Christ lives in you, He does not give you anything. He is everything. Please get the difference of that. Because Christ lives in you, He does not give you peace. He is peace. Doesn't give you love. He is love. Doesn't give you grace. He is grace. What is that? That's your new life. That's the new creature. The new creature is not somebody that God's given great gifts to. They're somebody who are somebody. You are Christ. That's a different gospel. You see, until we get fixed in that, Christ don't ever mean anything. Well, that that wasn't what I want to talk about, but I just can't pass up words like that because you need to see it. For instance, you take the fruit of the Spirit. Everybody said, oh, when you get full of the Holy Spirit, you have the fruit of the Spirit. No! The fruit of the Spirit is not the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the life that is in you. The word Spirit there means the Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit's not one who gives His personality to you. You don't have the personality of the Holy Spirit. You have the personality of Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit are all personality traits. Come direct from the Christ that is in you. Already, He's in you. That's there. That's not the verse we're dealing with, though. We're dealing with verse 15, Ephesians 2. Having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in Himself of twain one new man so making peace. Boy, what a loaded verse. That verse covers the whole of the Old Testament and Judaism. It covers the law, the commandments, and the Torah, the ordinances. Law, Moses' law. The commandments contained in the ordinances, the Torah. What's the key word there? Abolished. They're abolished. Don't come and tell me like most preachers do. Don't you think we need a little bit of law? Yeah. For every little bit of law you get, cut out the cross. Make it proportionate. And the heavier law you give, you don't need a cross at all. Isn't that simple? That's a simple equation. What does this say? It's abolished. Having abolished in his flesh. Where did he abolish the law and the Torah and the commandments? In his flesh. What does that mean? Well, not only were you and I in his body, but in his body he carried the law, the Ten Commandments, and the Torah, all the ordinances. And when he died, Paul says, they all died with him. Now, you still want a little bit of law? You can twist the Scriptures even... Scriptures Paul gives us around to get a little bit of law. But what you do, you miss the point of what happened at the cross. When Jesus said it is finished, what was finished was everything that had to do with man's salvation. What was finished was the Old Testament and its laws. What He brought forth was what took place in that council meeting between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that created a whole new race of people. Amen? Amen? Abolished. There's another Scripture that uses the same word, abolished. 
There are scriptures that say it all died at the cross. Now let's talk about why that happened. Isn't law a good thing? Good thing for our kids. Until they know Christ lives in them, you got to lay the law down. And I believe in that firmly. When they come to know Christ as their Savior, then you need to teach them the Scriptures. But you know, there's a demand in our flesh for the law. When you had the sin nature in you, the law made you feel good when you kept it. Because there wasn't hardly anything else good about you. But you felt good when you kept the law. I have that to happen every once in a while. Uh, I stop at a red light. And I see other people just about to go through it or on the yellow light. And I say, oh, I feel good. I stopped. Confronted with the law, I stopped. Didn't have to, but I did. I could have gone on through this light. See, you feel good when you keep the law. That's why you like a little bit of law. Feel good feeling. We pay income tax in the United States. You do here? (laughs) Don't you feel good when you pay it? Sure, you ought to feel good. You got it out of your hair. You don't have to worry about it for another year. Feel good when you keep the law. So our verse tells us, He abolished it in His body, in His flesh. That was the way grace had an entry into God's plan, was that Jesus could take away everything that hindered God from giving perfect grace to humanity. God didn't want you to live under a law. He only set up a law because of miserable Israel. They cried for a law, so God said, okay, I'll give you a law. But the first law wasn't with Israel. The first law was with Adam. The whole of the Old Testament is ruled by law. People had a hard time keeping it. And the end result is, Christ took care of it on the cross. Destroyed it in His body. And so what did He do with that? He made one new man. One new man. Who is that man? Acts 17. The man that God ordained. Who is that man? That man is Jesus. Christ is your life. He fixed the whole world. Fixed all of religion. Fixed everything up in the body of Christ that was unnecessary, unneedful, or harmful to humanity. And He killed it. See, people have a hard time with the law. Most churches still preach some law. And their problem is the cross. You wonder why there was such a beating on the body of Christ. Well, in His flesh, the law was placed. It was there. Just like your sin was in His body. And when they beat on Him, God did a good job of beating it to death. In His body. So he made one new man. Are you really aware of the new man that you are? The new man that's in you. Are you aware of that? Let's go back to something I talked about. When Nicodemus met Jesus one night and said, You're a great teacher. My You must be from God. Look at the things you do and the things you teach. 
Jesus wasn't interested in any of those things. They were all outer. So what did He do? He took the conversation inward to what a human being really was. And if you're not careful, your whole life can be judged by the outer things. Be careful of that. John 3 is a good place where Jesus shows us the difference between the outer things and the inner things. Because we all get wrapped up in the outer things. You see a big church building, a great church building, oh, isn't that great? You see a great crowd, my, this is a great number of people serving God. You have somebody that talks about a miracle, that's good. But all these things are outer. They're outer. So what Jesus did to Nicodemus was to turn him instantly to the inner thing. Just right out of the the blue, so to speak. Just right out of the conversation with not recognizing anything Nicodemus says, Jesus speaks to him and says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. I don't know now if Nicodemus ever got saved. I don't know if he ever followed along at all. He's a good man, though. He was so good that he and Joseph of Arimathea were the only two that took care of the dead body of Jesus. I don't know what happened to Nicodemus, but I know something Jesus did that was very important in that conversation. His interest was not him being a great teacher. His interest was not being a miracle worker. His interest was, Nicodemus, the only way a human being is going to be changed is inwardly. You must be rebirthed. So Jesus doesn't discuss his earthly life as Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't discuss the fact that he speaks as no other man ever spoke. Because you see, that doesn't really have to do with the main thing God's doing. Those are good things. Some of them are important. But that's not the main thing God is doing. So what Jesus did was direct Nicodemus to the great inward relationship humanity has with God. The most important thing. Now, you know who could have been listening or could have been told about it. I don't think John would be off the shadow somewhere following Jesus and hear this conversation because Nicodemus wanted to be alone with Jesus. But you know who heard about that conversation? You know who got the details of that conversation and did something about it? It was John. Nobody else mentioned that. Maybe no one else knew about it. Maybe it was something just between God and John, the apostle. But that stirred John. And some 30 years after Paul died and John wrote his epistles, he had important things to say about this inner work of God we call the birthing. So I want you to turn to the first epistle of John. I have five important scriptures you need to mark and become acquainted with. To most theologians, they are the hardest scriptures to deal with in the Bible. To most preachers, they're the hardest to deal with. I remember... When I was in college, work and had to do with creating a curriculum. The hardest task we had in curriculum was getting somebody who would be willing to teach First John.
And the reason was that First John comes against every theology of the Old Testament, every theology of Jesus of Nazareth, and every understanding that a human being could have about God if they don't know the in Christ message. So we're going to look into five of these instances given to us in First John. Go to the third chapter of First John. And I want us to start reading at, uh, let's go to verse 7. No, I'm going, to, I'm going to do that differently. Go back to the third chapter at the, at the first part of it to about verse 8. Is that what I said? I said verse 8, didn't I? All right. Go to verse 8. 1 John 3 and 8. It says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. Well, that wouldn't set well with it. Everybody's running around saying, Well, I do a little sinning, but everybody does it. You're of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Therefore, whosoever is birthed, there it is, born, birthed of God, does not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Two times in one verse it speaks of the birthing. First time this has been mentioned in the Scriptures since Jesus met Nicodemus that night. Whoever is born again does not commit sin. Well, we have to stop right there, don't we? Because, my goodness, do you know anybody that doesn't sin? You know anybody that doesn't fail God at some point or another? What in the world is he talking about? Well, theologians have a hard time with this. Holiness preachers have a difficult time. They'd like to rip First John out of the Bible. What is it talking about? It's talking about the fact that first, the in Christ position is what settles all Scriptures that have to do with grace. But second, what this is saying is that something must have happened to those that are born again that fixes them so they cannot commit that sin. Notice, I said that sin. There are two kinds of sin as far as God's plan is concerned. The first and most important kind of sin is the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the Garden of Eden that was passed on to every person that was birthed on this earth to this very day. Humanity is held responsible of that sin. Every little baby that's born into this world is born with that same sin that Adam and Eve committed. But that isn't what this Scripture says. This Scripture is not talking about everybody that's born into the world. It says, Whosoever is birthed of God does not commit this sin. Cannot commit this sin. So what is the sin? What is the one sin that Jesus took at the cross and destroyed completely? It was Adam's sin, the thing we call the sin nature. No one who is born again can ever again be bothered by the sin nature which came to us by Adam's sin. You ought to be jumping up and down shouting. Nobody. Whoever is born of God cannot commit sin. 
Let's go a little further. What is the other sin? Back in the first chapter of First John, he talks about that. And you need to go with me to that. Go back to the first chapter. And let's start at about the fifth verse. This then is the message which we have heard of Him and declare unto you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Huh. He said over in the third chapter we couldn't commit that sin. But here He's talking about a sin we can commit. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. That seems strange, doesn't it? Looks like John's got a double mind here. Nope. He's talking about two different things. He's talking about the sin that damned us and sent us to hell. That was Adam's sin. When Jesus died on the cross, everyone who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ would be free of that sin. Whereas by one man sin entered in the world, Adam, by another man, Christ, sin was destroyed. What sin? Adam's sin. That's the sin that brings separation from God. That's the sin that sends people to hell. Well, what about these other sins? These other sins are sins that believers commit. Ignorance. Sometimes you just get mad. You just get mean. These are sins that are already taken care of at the cross, but need to be confessed. If we confess our sin... He's faithful and just to forgive us. Isn't that simple? Somebody's always coming to me and say, Well, I don't believe we confess sin. You better learn how. That's relationship. That's relationship. That's your relationship with the Father. Somebody's always trying to tell me, Well, I don't have to do that. I'm a Christian. Well, I'm going to tell you, if I'd have done that to my earthly father, I'd have gotten two spankings instead of one. He'd like to know that I had some feeling about what I did that was wrong. See, just have some feeling about it. He's going to forgive me. He loves me. It's already taken care of at the cross. But He would like for me to talk about it. Instead of leaving with the air, well, bless God, I was right. My father's wrong. I can do it again and get by too. Don't think like that. So that's the other sin. What are these sins? They are the sins we commit. Go through those verses I just read and mark all the personal pronouns in it and you'll see the message. The message is what we do. We sin. We confess our sin. We do that. That's, that's something we do. And if you say you don't have this sin, he says you're a liar. All right. That takes care of the first verse I want you to have real feeling for. That's this one over in the, in the third chapter, verse 8. It says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Why? Because the seed is in us that paid the price that there be no more sin of Adam. The seed. How would you get born again? you got a seed in you. Peter, in his verse, says that uh, from the foundation of the world, the Lamb was slain. Uh, the seed there that Peter talks about is translated sperm. Hard word, but that sperm, the God sperm is put in you. Sperm comes from an act of love. Go back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that in an ultimate act of love, He placed His only begotten Son in the believer. The seed. 
The seed went into the believer. That's what made you born again. You have the seed of God in you. What happened for that to take place? The cross had to destroy the old nature and take care of Adam's sin, which was a part of the law. We saw that verse. So now, in this eighth verse, ninth verse, we say the seed remaineth in him. Whoever is birthed of God, the seed remains in you. What does that say? He's never going to leave you. Because of your birthing, there's never going to be an abortion. There's never going to be a foul-up on God's part. You're saved. Saved to the uttermost, John would say. The seed remains in you. If a person is genuinely born again, they'll never lose that seed. They'll never go. That seed is Christ. He'll never leave you or forsake you. When Paul taught this, there were some people who said, Oh, goody, I can keep on sinning all I want to. Paul has other words for that. We can't get into it. But he said, If you like to be spanked every day, the Lord will hand And there are plenty of believers that are tormented daily over their walk. Because if the seed is in them, they're miserable if they sin against the Lord. God fixed it so it would be like that. But the seed won't go away. The seed is there. Chapter 4. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Let me stop right there. Because your love isn't worth a penny. You got that? Your love isn't worth anything. Love is of God. Love is Christ. Christ is love. That's another virtue that He doesn't give. It's what He is. So love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Two things here. The birthing brings love and knowledge. When you were birthed, rebirthed, and Christ came to live in you, you should have had a whole new knowledge. That's what I've been talking about all day. You should have had a change in your mind. You should have done something about your thinking. Knowledge comes with the birthing. What is the knowledge? It isn't me anymore. There's another one in me. Let's look at the common situation. A woman is pregnant. It isn't long before she knows somebody else is in her. What does that other person in her do to her? Changes her life. She don't sleep like she used to. She can't eat like she used to. She can't go like she used to. She can't even bend over like she used to. (laughs) What is she getting from all that? Another knowledge. i got somebody in me. I'm not the same person. I can't do the same things. Sadly, when she delivers that child, she hastens to get back to what she was. A lot of believers are like that. But this Christ in us will never be delivered. You'll be pregnant with Him till the judgment day. He'll never leave you. He said that. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Don't you see it? That ought to change your life. That ought to bring knowledge to you. The birthing ought to do something to you. It ought to make a change in your mind. Like a woman has to be careful what she eats. She has to be careful the way she works and labors. 
I think every believer born again needs to realize that Christ in me determines my actions. That's why Paul doesn't rail out against all the things that's wrong with humanity and believers. He talks about another life in us, and that ought to be an important thing to us. Another life in us. Somebody else lives in me. That ought to determine. I've told a little old story many a time when I was a teenager. I decided I'd be a sinner one day, raised in the Baptist church. And so, you were either a saint or a sinner, and I got tired of being a saint. So I announced to everybody I was going to sin. And the worst place in our town was a pool hall, downtown in a basement of a building. That's the worst place. That's where all the drunkards were. That's where all the criminals hung out there. And so I, I said, I'm going to go to the pool hall because that was the theme of every preacher who was ready to preach against something in our town, that ungodly pool hall. So I went to the pool hall. Felt a little strange. I went two times. And then my mama found out about it. She said, you're going to the pool hall, aren't you? I said, yes. Well, she said, all I got to say about it is, every time you go into that pool hall, you're carrying Jesus. You're taking Him right in there. And I said, I don't know. She said, I don't know how you could do that. Don't you have any respect for Him at all? Isn't there anything about Jesus? Oh, I said, Mama, I really love the Lord. I just want to play around a little bit. Well, you know, the next time I went to the pool hall, I put my hand on that door handle and something said to me, here you go again, taking Jesus into this ungodly place. Well, I went on in, but I was miserable all the time. The next time I went to the pool hall, I put my hand on the handle and I couldn't turn it. It got to me. This is no place for me to take Jesus. I'd heard the cursing. I'd heard all the bad things going on in there. The violence. The drinking. And I said, if I love Him at all, I ought not to carry Him in there. That was my first understanding that Christ in you gives you a new knowledge. That's what this verse says. Love and knowledge. I'm not going to hit you over the head if you're a Christian about what you do, but I will tell you that whatever you do, Christ is there too. He's a participator. Not a participator, but He is there unable to participate because you are out of order. Well, in my old days, they would have preached Jesus left you at the pool hall door. And you're going to go to hell. But John says, whoever is birthed of God will come to this new knowledge. New understanding. What's it all about? It's about Jesus. It isn't about you. It wasn't about me liking pool and going to ungodly places because I just wanted, I was tired of religion. No, sir. It's Jesus. Everything has to do with Jesus. That's what this conference is all about. Go with me to the fifth chapter. That fifth chapter of 1 John is explosive. Look at verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Boy, it was easy to get into this thing, wasn't it? And everyone that loveth Him, that begat, that birthed them, loveth Him also is begotten of Him. Here we've got a couple occasions in this verse that talk about the birthing. First it says, Whosoever believeth Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you were rebirthed. And then it said, Everyone that loveth Him that begat Him also is begotten of Him. Isn't that simple? Whoever's been birthed, rebirthed, 
has love. And that love that we have is a sign that we've been birthed. Birthed by what? Doctor? No. Churchanity? No. It says of Him. Birthed of Him. You see, finally, everything in Christianity settles to love. He loves you. He wants you to love Him. And He said the world is going to know that you have love in you because you love one another. So it all finally settles to love. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Every relationship you have in grace is anchored to love. It's a very simple thing. It's a matter of love. But I've got to move on quickly in this fifth chapter. Go down to verse 4. Whosoever is birthed of God overcometh the world. Let's stop right there. Everyone that is birthed of God overcomes the world. What battle have you been fighting? You a Christian? What battles have you been fighting? Most of them are worldly battles. Everyone birthed of God overcomes the world. The world is not a big issue to God. The things that happen in this world, political, wars, storms, Everything that happens in this world is not a big deal to God when it concerns His children because He says whoever is birthed by God overcomes it. That don't make us feel good, does it? Boy, when I hurt, I hurt. No, He said you overcome the world. Let me tell you an ironical thing. I don't, I don't want you to turn to it. But there's a very ironical thing back in uh, John 17. Because in that chapter where Jesus is praying to the Father, 17 times He mentions the world and each time more or less critical. I pray not for the world. I don't want them taken out of the world. He has 17 things at least to say about the world, if I remember my number right. Whosoever is birthed of God overcomes the world. The world was not a big problem with Jesus. You know what his biggest problem was in the Lord's Prayer in John 17? It was, Father, I want them to be one with me as I'm one with you. I don't want them to be split anymore. Paul would say, He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. That's what Jesus prayed for. He said, I want them to be one with me. The Catholic Church right now is on a mission. The new Pope has stated it, that he's going to try to bring religions together and make it a one world fellowship. What's wrong with that? That isn't what God wants. What He wants is for you to be one with the Christ in you, and then we don't have to worry about us being one with other Christians. That's what Jesus prayed for. He said, I pray not for the world. I'm not interested in the world in that sense. What I'm interested in is those that have been rebirthed to be one with Me, as I'm one with the Father, because when that happens, world problems are just not important anymore. In fact, Life and death not important anymore. He said, don't worry about dying. It's a new way of living. It's a new understanding. It doesn't just have one point or two. It's a whole new life, the Christ life. That's what it is. It's a whole new life, the Christ life. So the verse says, Whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. That's where your victory Your victory is not changing the world. It's overcoming the world. 
We're going to always have some crusaders and activists in Christianity who are out trying to change this world. We have no Scripture for that. The Scripture is that we overcome the world. What about all the rest of them? They need Jesus. That's how simple that is. What the world needs is Jesus. You have Christ. You'll overcome the world. What are you to do? You're to be one with that Christ in you. That's your greatest witness. That's your greatest testimony. Knowing that you and Christ are one. That Jesus is able to use you. Use your life. Your body. Your mind. He's able to use you. You're one with Him. I could spend a lot of time on these verses, but let's, let's move on. I need to read the the next verse there, verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? What does it all come back to? Jesus. Just Jesus. It all comes back to that. There's nothing else. Just Jesus. Just Jesus. Whether you live or die, just Jesus. Whether the world is cruel to you or not, just Jesus. God didn't have any other plan, and He's not working anywhere else. Just Jesus. But one more verse, and I'm through. Verse 18. We know that whosoever is birthed of God sinneth not, but he is begotten of God and keepeth himself that that wicked one toucheth him not. Born-again Christians ought not to have an affiliation with Satan. And that happens when Christians run around in every trial and test of life saying, Oh, it's the devil. It's the devil. Always the devil. What does the world need to see? That we have power over the devil? No, the world needs to see Jesus. Where are they going to see Jesus? In you. Where is the real Christ? In you. How did He get there? He was birthed there. You are born again. Praise God. Whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Is that the same as the first verse we dealt with on this subject? Probably. But it means that you never have to sin because you think I'm bad. Because I'm, a, I'm just a bad person. I'm a sinner and I'm just not strong enough. Well, we're not talking about you. In Christianity, we're not talking about what you can do. We're not talking about how strong you are. We're not talking about how much you pray or how much you read your Bible. We're not talking about how much you fast and pray. We're not talking about your exploits or your works. We're not talking about you. Amen. We're talking about Jesus. Yes. Whoever is birthed with Christ in them doesn't sin. I'm sure that's talking about the original sin because he's already said that his believers are going to sin. But we're talking about that sin where you get it fixed in your mind that you're bad. I have to deal with this with alcoholics because they got an age-old problem where they think that I'll always be an alcoholic. I'll never change from my sin. I'll never change from my problem. And they get up. They used to get up, except when I come along, I stopped it. They'd get up and say, I've been, a, I've been an alcoholic for 36 years, but I haven't had a drink. I looked them straight in the eye and I say, if Jesus did it, you're not an alcoholic. Now, if Jesus didn't do it, you may go back to drinking. You understand what the birthing is? I took you to these Scriptures so that you could see that the Bible is clear. You have been rebirthed, born again. And for Christianity to be separated from this understanding that Christ lives in them has almost nullified true Christianity. So it all comes back to the same thing. Christ in you is your hope of glory. A fellow said to me not long ago, said, that's all you talk about is Christ in you. I said, do you understand all about it? Well, he said, I don't understand it, but he said, I get tired of hearing it. I said, then you don't... 
It don't matter what else you hear. If you don't understand that, nothing is important to you. If the church is going to save you, you're in a bad spot. If doctrine's going to save you, you're in a worse spot. If preachers are going to save you, you're in a bad spot. Jesus. Christ alone is the answer. A lady said to me not long ago, she said, well, I just can't quit the church because uh, the church will tell God whether or not I'm ready to go to heaven. Do you know there are many people who believe that? That the church is the one to put them into heaven? That's what purgatory is all about. That's what money is all about. You must be born again. If you're born again, you've entered into a whole different life than religion has let us live and believe in and understand. That understanding is clear in Paul's epistles. So we keep opening to them till it breaks through our crusty mind and we understand who we are as Christians, who we are in Christ, and who we are on this date. God love you. That's it. Another amazing lesson from Warren Litzman in his series called It's Jesus, Just Jesus. Thank you for being with us today, and always we appreciate it. We'll pick up right where we left off next time, so don't worry. Be sure and check us out. Our website is christ-life.org. Read all about this In Christ message and go to the bookstore and look at the wonderful material that Warren left behind that you can have right in your own home. We'd like to thank Robbie Litzman for allowing us to go into the archives this week and every week to bring you these wonderful messages from Warren. Valerie Hill does our Twitter account. Tammy Laycock does the weekly podcast notes. And this program is produced weekly by the wonderful and talented Teresa Ferraro from the Christ Life Fellowship. Until next time, I'm Brad Wilson, loving the Christ life.